This week, I have a very highly requested episode. I spoke to the leader of the Patriotic Alliance, Gaten McKenzie. We talked very openly about his serious criminal past. Yes, I wanted to become a criminal. The, the second part of the question is, is it inevitable? Yes, it was inevitable. I am an alpha male. And his vision for the future of South Africa if he becomes president in 2024. They will go home. We will mass deport them. I'm saying to you, 2024, something is going to happen here. And that something is the Patriotic Alliance. This episode does go off the rails at times, but in my opinion, it's a future Wide Awake podcast classic. So, yeah, I'm sure you've been wondering, what is this on the table? I'm actually surprised you haven't really brought it up. But uh. in case you are hungry, I did organize some food. <laughs> you just sat down and you were on your phone. You just like were you were like ignoring the fact, and like you were talking so seriously for like five or ten minutes. And I was like, how is this guy not? Last week, the Wide Awake podcast launched on all streaming platforms for the very first time. And you guys got us to number four on the Spotify charts in South Africa. If you guys can head over to Spotify and Apple Podcasts and leave a rating and a review, I would really appreciate that. And stream a few older episodes after this one. Without further ado, let's get straight into this week's episode. I hope you guys enjoy. Cool. <laughs> you ready? How are you doing, Mr. McKenzie? I'm very good yourself. Yeah, I'm doing really good. I mean, just to get straight into it, right? There's a topic that I want to discuss, and that topic is the uncomfortable truth, right? You know what the uncomfortable truth is, obviously. Sure. It's your book. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, can you just tell me about the uncomfortable truth, what it's about, and how you ended up writing that book? Well, basically, it's, uh, I was in a terrible accident, a car accident, and I was laying in the bed. And I decided, you know what? I want to tell my daughters about life. I nearly lost my life. And I started talking about, about my life. And I told them about my wildlife. And I thought if anything had to happen to me, nobody would have been there for my daughters to, to warn them about men and, you know, the daddy-daughter talk. It was supposed to be something private. Then my lawyer was like, fuck this. I'm going to leak this out. Everybody needs to hear this. That's how it came about. And it was mainly about sex, if I'm not mistaken. It was about everything. It was about love. It was about... You can't talk really about love deeply without mentioning sex. Yeah. So it was about love. It was about sex. It was about everything. So, I mean, I'll just read you something that I just saw this in an article. It was about the book. It said... The president of the Patriotic Alliance has now made it his mission to empower women by giving them the truth. My book tells women what their mothers are too scared to tell them. It talks about everything from anal sex to threesomes. <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't even in politics then when I wrote the book. <laughs> so it wasn't the president, it was still wild G. You see, I always tell people that we wanted to... You know, it's, it's, it's a matter for me that women, we are... There's so many things you want to know, but you never too scared to ask. Mm. And then you get like, you know, women should know, as I say in the book, there's players. And I was one of the players and I thought, let me, I don't live that life anymore. So, but let me impart some. Some, no some knowledge, some wisdom. Yeah, sure. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, I mean, it says you own nightclubs and you've traveled the world. So you are a good person to give advice because you've seen a lot. I've seen and I've done a lot. <laughs> I mean, can you can you tell me some stories? Because, I mean, you say you've seen a lot, you've traveled the world, you've owned 
lots of businesses, nightclubs. I'm sure you've seen some crazy stuff when it comes to relationships and uh, sex. No, I think I just have a, 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 another view when it comes to relationships is that, you know, I've seen so many people committing suicide because of love. I've seen so many people saying that I've, there's no me without you. I've seen so many people coming out and say, you know what, uh, this woman stole my man. That's all bullshit. You know what I'm saying? There's no you without God. Can't be no you without an individual. Uh, there's only no you without God. And secondly, nobody steals your man. If your man wants to be stolen, he will just go and, and be with somebody mm -hmm. else. And thirdly, is the fact that, you know, it's, you look at Kronstadt prison, it's full of women that's guilty of crimes of passion, that killed for or because of a man, that killed a man or they killed for a man. And it, it doesn't need to be that way. And I say to people that, you know what, it's, 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 you need to, people let, get themselves into situations and relationships that that's a disaster from the start. You, you meet a guy with a Lamborghini and you're like saying, you've met Prince Charming. And, ah, come on. And there are people with Lamborghinis, there's true love. But what I'm trying to say to you is that you base your whole life on this person and when this person leaves, so it was a book of love more than that. And I tell people that, you know, particularly in the black community and the colored communities and the Indian communities, it's a bit taboo to talk to your parents about sex. Mm -hmm. And I had to tell my daughters in the book, this book is also dedicated to my daughters, mm -hmm. telling my daughters that, listen, man, you got to understand one thing. You got to understand one thing. It's that if a man is sex with you and he leaves you, it's not the end of the world. You got to understand that, you know, you got to, you got to, be sure before you sleep with somebody that that you fine with it. You gotta be sure that when 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 you have somebody that you love, uh, to be faithful to that person, for instance. But it should be you should know who you are. So basically that's that's what it's about. People accept labels of society too easily. Yeah. Uh, uh, well, I think people try to f fit each other in a box because it makes us feel comfortable, right? Because we like stability as humans. If things aren't stable or things aren't predictable, it scares us, right? Yes. So when, it, when, you grow, when you grow up, your parents teach you something, like you need to get married, have a stable job, go to school, you know, and, and live your life, be happy. And if you aren't those things, if you're sad or you can't find someone to fall into a relationship with, right? or uh, you don't want to get married at all. That's People true. look at you like you're strange or there's something wrong, but humans are very complicated and you can't have one solution or one framework for complicated uh, people. You couldn't have said it better. You don't allow people to put you in a box that you have to be married. And that for me is just the hypocrisy of people, which I wrote that book so that my daughters cannot fall into this box of hypocrisy that so many people, as I said to you, the book was never intended to be released. The book was a father that nearly died. And I thought, I've made money. I've lived my life to the fullest. What would I regret right now? And I said, I would have regretted not giving my daughters 
advice. Advice. Mm-hmm. To say to them that don't let society put you in a box, as you said. Don't let a man decide who you are. Don't go and fight another woman because your husband decided on that woman. Don't blame the mm. woman. We all have free will. Don't go out here and go and kill somebody because of a man. Yeah. And those are the things that I'm talking to them about. And I said to them, listen, sex is there to enjoy it. No doubt about it. When you have your husband and, and when you're in your comfort of your, you should be a queen on the street and a bitch in bed. And I tell them that, my daughters, in the book. And the one thing I always said, they shouldn't get a book before they're 18. But what daughter's 30 did? Yeah, I agree with that. <laughs> but she managed to read the book, and I was very embarrassed about that, I must say. <laughs> and she wanted to say to me that, Dad, I got a few questions about the book. I said, wait, wait, till, wait till you're older. Wait till you're older. So we had a deal, you know. Yeah. And she reaches the age of 16. I can answer all those questions. You can give it a talk. Sure. Well, amazing, man. Well, it, just in case you are hungry, right? I'm sure you've been wondering what is this on the table. I'm actually surprised you haven't really brought it up. But uh, in case you are hungry, I did organize us some food. Is it? Right, yeah. So let me just, yeah. Just. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So, just in case you are. I don't, I don't know if you're hungry, but um, yeah, some sushi if you would like some sushi. No, where are you going? Where are you going? Where are you, going? you want some sushi? I don't know. I, oh, I don't okay, eat sushi. Okay, okay, okay. We'll save it for later. Thanks, thanks, Caroline. <laughs> Kerry, Kerry, Kerry. Thanks, Caroline. Kerry, Kerry will have enjoyed this. <laughs> I'm going to tell you. Cheers, eh? <laughs> so I mean, I know for people watching at home, that probably wouldn't have made much sense. Yeah, right? I know. My best friend, this is for people watching at home. My best friend was he had a big party. He's never at a party until so he is never at a party. And he said, When I become rich, I'm gonna have the biggest party and and he had a sushi party and I must also a, a disclaimer. I wasn't, I left the party when the sushi started to pop. You, you left the party? <laughs> no, I, that's not for me. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Because there was naked girls everywhere, hey. Not even that. It's just not my style. The sushi on them. But I'm, that was, yeah. the controversy was there was a lot of naked women and there was yes. sushi all over them. And they ate sushi of them. And, and I don't know why people criticized him because what we found uh, hilarious during the criticism of my friend was, that the people that criticize you are the people that go to strip clubs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they would complain about it and all of that. Yeah, don't don't mm. throw rocks at a glass house, eh? Yeah, no, definitely. Because everyone's got their secrets here. But um, <laughs> mm. so, I mean, I want to talk, get straight into your early life, right? I know uh, you had quite a criminal past. You robbed banks. I mean, you did armed robberies. You did a, You did a whole bunch of things from a very early age. So, I mean, you said in an interview that you already knew that you were going to be a criminal when you were eight years old. How could you know that? And why would you want, did you want to be one or did you just know that it was inevitable? Both. I wanted to be one and I knew it was inevitable. Firstly, I'll tell you why I knew I wanted to be one and then I'll tell you why it was inevitable. Firstly, my father was a storeman. My father was the most honest man I've ever met in my life. My father as well. My father, and just to show you the level of his honesty, I'll make you two quick examples. 
Maar, maar we would have no, you would fix cash registers. And the old cash registers, people would forget money underneath the drawer of the cash register. Mm-hmm. And we would have no food in the house, and my father would find money in one of the cash registers. And he would refuse for us to use that money. And my little brain would tell me, but nobody saw this money. We can use it. And he said, no, my son. Second thing is, my mom gave me, I think, a 20 bucks then. And I went to go buy ice cream. And the ice cream man on the street gave me 40-something rand change. The ice cream was five rand. My father made me go look for that man. I prayed for us not to find that man. After four hours, I started praying for us to find that man. So that was my father. So my father... There was no food in our house. My father was just a storeman. My neighbor was a bank robber. My neighbor had all the food, all the girls, all the cars, all the clothes, all the life. Now, for an impressionable mind, I knew I never wanted to be my father. I wanted to be my neighbor. At the age of eight. Then the second, so the, the question I'm answering is the question that, did I want to become a criminal? Mm. Yes, I wanted to become a criminal. The, the second part of the question is, is it inevitable? Yes, it was inevitable. I am an alpha male. I am not the smartest, but surely not the dumbest. And I could never say boss and missus. I could never be subjected to my father to say, to report to the most stupidest white person you can meet on the, he can't even spell his own name correctly. I saw my father's boss one day writing railway incorrectly while I'm standing there as a seven-year-old and I knew how to spell Spoorweg, she's a railway. And he couldn't spell it, he was my father's boss. So I was not my father. So it's inevitable for us Many people call us gangsters today, criminals, but they've not grown up like we've grown up. Mm. They were not told by the state that you can't become this. They were not told by the state you get a substandard education. They were not told by the state that you can only live here and you can only apply for this job and you can only go to this university, you can only go to this school. You are not... The, so there's a, that's why I've got the world of respect for any, any colored or black man that has not turned out a criminal, because they're much stronger than us. But the majority of our people, it was, the, the, the land was laid in such a way that it was very easy to become a criminal. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I mean, I'm sure you saw your father working so hard being the honest man that he was, and he got nowhere in life, right? And then you saw the guy next door who took the easy way out, and he's living the best life. 100%. And we see that reflected today, right? You see people uh, like construction workers building some rich person's house, spending the whole day there, their families at home, they're there till eight o'clock at night doing manual labor. And then you get people like me sitting here having a conversation, right? And it's like, it's completely different worlds. And one of them has potential to do a lot better than the other, right? And the other one is gonna stay in that same position. Now, let me ask you a question. Because we're having a conversation. How old are you now? I'm 27. How many of your friends have been killed through gunshot? Um, well, it depends because no, I, I, I have a lot of gangster friends. 
No, but I'm they, saying my your, close your friends. Circle, your none, circle. none of them have been killed. None yeah. of them. None of them, yeah. None of them have been killed. Yeah. Now you see, when I was at the age of 12, I could count how many of my friends have been killed. Mm. At the age of 12, I could dismantle a gun and put it together. So people do, sometimes criticize the wounds. You know, I, there's a leader of the DA, I think his name is Leon Schreiber. He called me a fail the other day. What does that mean? Rubbish type of thing. He called me that. And I realized something with him calling me that. That black people, including myself, we've not totally healed. Because I was so broken. Not angry. Because it brought back memories how the white people in, that my father used to work for would call my father failhood. And that brought back memories. It brought back memories and, and it was a good thing that it showed me I've, I'm a changed man. Because I would have, if, if I wasn't a changed man, I would have gone for that thing and dealt with him. But because I'm a changed man, I internalized it, I said, it's okay. That's what he thinks of me. That's not who I am. But I wasn't worried about what he said to me. It just brought back that how, how many times I heard my father being called that. And I realized how many other people out there still get that degradation, humiliation, and be constantly reminded of what happened in the past. Mm. But because we've decided to move on in this country, let's move on. You see, people can paint racism. Racism is racism. Yeah. If I can't accept who you are and, and your culture and calling your names, I'm a racist. Of course, yeah. And I'm saying that no reason in the world or nobody can come up with a reason as to why racism should exist. As an ex-racist, I can tell you I was racist. And no matter what white people did to me, some people will say I'm justified. I was justified in being racist. There's no justification for racism. Yeah, I mean, I completely agree. But how do you think we should move forward? Like, how do you think South Africa moves forward? Because there's clearly still a huge divide and a huge problem. They should vote for me. <laughs> of course they should. <laughs> well, no. I feel like they'll make up their minds by the end of this, whether or not they no, will. No, <laughs> you see, for me, it's that it's not only mm. white people that want to move on. Yeah. You know, there's a, there's a, there's a, there's a, um, I, I call it the intellectual difference, where white people are constantly reminded by some failing leaders about apartheid. Now, they, we don't want people to forget apartheid. Apartheid should never be forgotten. Apartheid should always be remembered. Mm-hmm. But we should not say, we should not blame our failures all our failures on apartheid. If we steal the money of the government, if we if we don't look after our people, we can't say it's because of apartheid. There's a distinct difference between remembering apartheid and bad service delivery. Yeah. But the people responsible for bad service delivery still blame white people. Uh, remembering is not blaming, as a lot of whites make that mistake. I can't forget my uncles that died in the struggle. You should not be offended as a white person if I remember my uncles that your forefathers killed. My family's actually originally from Germany, so. So. <laughs> but I know or, what you mean, yeah. Or I can move yeah. it around. Yeah. yeah. The, the, in your example, the uh, Jewish people, 
your family from Germany. Yeah. And there was a Holocaust against Jewish people. Yeah. Which I think was worse than apartheid because the six million Jews passed on. But Jewish youngsters should not, if they remember their parents and their great-grandparents, they should not, you should not be offended as a German or ex-German for Jewish people that still want to remember their people. No, of course not, yeah. But my problem I'm having is where our, some of our leaders wants to blame everything on apartheid. Mm. I am saying we need to move on in this country. And how do we move on? We move on by saying, guys, apartheid happened. We can't change it. We can honor those that died. We can forgive those that killed them. That's the first step. True forgiveness. But what happens after that? We build together. We leave these labels of white, black, Indian, and colored. We become one nation. Japanese, uh, people in Japan are Japanese. People in America are Americans. People in Italy are Italians. In South Africa, you must be a South African period. That's where you start. And I'm not saying a redress shouldn't happen. Redress should happen, but there are ways to redress. You know, I've, I've been looking at one issue. Let's take the most controversial one. PE. BEE. BEE. Everybody has been complaining about BEE, except the guys that get the, 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 the deals. What will I do? BE is not giving the desired result. BE is very backward. This is what I will be doing as I, if I'm the leader of this country. I will cancel BE, where I must now get a stake in your podcast business, a stake in your father's business simply because you're white and I'm black. That's nonsense. What I will be doing, though, for redress, I will take every company in South Africa should give 1%, every white company in South Africa should give 1% of the turnover, not the profit, the turnover, 1%, because we don't want... People fudging the numbers. Yeah, we don't want uh, gymnastics, uh, yeah. accounting gymnastics. That 1% must go into a bank, an empowerment bank. That bank will have a trillion dollars in less than two years. That trillion dollars must be administered by the very same business people. And we should give loans to up-and-coming black, emerging black businesses. Loans with, with easy collateral, with zero mm. collateral. Your skin should be your collateral. Now, if you want to open a car wash, you can't start in the 10th floor. You can't build a multi-billion rent business in five years. So you got to start small. And you get points, and you get points, and certain points should tell you you are eligible to borrow so much from the bank. So you got to start because I'm an entrepreneur, and I know this thing of overnight success, it's, 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 it doesn't it's, exist. It's called lotto. Yeah. But now you come and say, I want to own a bank, but let me start with a car wash. I take a loan. I repay the loan. Mm. I start the next business. I get points. I get points. I get a grading. I get a grading. When you grade 10, you can now borrow uh, yeah. billion rents, no, no, for instance. I, yeah, I get it. And that's the only way for us to move forward. So I want to get back to this, right? But I just want to get back quickly. We'll talk about this just now again. But I want to talk about go back to the bank robberies, right? Just because I want to go in order here. Um, 
So you robbed a bank before you were 16 years old, right? That's, is that correct? Yes. Can you tell me how that ended up happening and in detail about the robbery? Sure. I was working as a car wash boy, a send-around boy for the gangs. My neighbors, they were big gang. And I'll be the one parking the cars. I will be the one washing the cars, hiding the guns. I will just be like a blue-eyed boy and came with a lot of power. Power that you might understand, but a lot of white kids would not understand. The power that comes with having the protection of the biggest gang in your community. Because we live in dangerous areas. So yeah. I could work it, I can I can walk at night and they'll know like, hey, don't, 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 don't fuck with him. He's this one's boy. What area was it? I did all. Hated all. Yes. Where's that in Joburg? You know, in Free State. In Free State, okay. Yeah, in our you had gangs like the Spaldings, the Stylistics, the Fast Guns, the Philadelphia Kids, the Boss Beerer, the YBRs. Like before I know my ABCs, I would knew which area does the YBR stay, the Fast Guns. Before I would know I'm not allowed to go there. And one day, these guys were on their way to go rob a bank. And when they came, the guy that was supposed to drive didn't pitch up. And it was my biggest prayer answered. Because they needed somebody who can drive, and they knew I could drive. I didn't have a license, I could drive. And I was waiting outside the bank, and they went in. They robbed the bank, they came out. And, just, and I was driving, and I think next time I was now a fully-fledged member. Yeah. I heard you say, uh, well, I read something you said. You said that's when you became a gangster. Yes, a real gangster. Mm. I was a, in my mind, I was a gangster then. I remember, I think, the third robbery we went to, we were then chased by the cops. And I outdrove those guys, those cops. I mean, like, I was hitting the corners, and I got away, and I became like this hero that, wow, this guy, you don't rob a bag without G, and then... Uh, I then got tired of getting the least amount of money because I'm the youngest. Yeah. I then started my own gang. And I said, let's go and rob banks. And that was very successful. At, we rob anything, not only banks. How many banks did you rob though? Not only banks. I've done a lot of robberies. And I how much know. money do you think you made from I, that? You know, it's the sad part of it. Is it all goes? It's all... You don't make a lot of money. I look For me now... I, I I donated a hundred thousand to somebody yesterday. Yesterday, I donated a hundred thousand to a girl that was with me at school, and that's sick. So I gave a hundred grand for treatment and stuff. And and I got so emotional because my friends died for this type of money I'm giving away. He would drop like forty thousand, twenty thousand sometimes. But that was a lot of money, not only then for us, where we coming from. We would cut like four grand. We'll go and rob a bank called Sambo. And you get 60,000, there's like five of you. And you're like, yeah, this is a big score. Like you've made it, yeah. And now you look back and I'm like, how God has transformed my life. And I look back and I'm like, did my friends really have to die for this type of money? If only they were patient. If only they were patient enough in life. If only I was patient enough. And it is a very sad thing for me that so many of my friends died in the course of being criminals. And you look at the amount of money, none of us robbed millions like you see in the movies. 
No. It's always little hits. It was little hits here. You see there's a garage. And half the time, like if, especially if you're driving and stuff and you need to get away from the cops, like I'm sure you dent the car or you... Oh, the car's stolen. We didn't you, care denting. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I was about to say, you might have to fix it afterwards, but uh, uh. That's, that's pretty crazy, hey? And I mean, when did you get caught and go to prison? How, how many times have you been to prison? I, I, was, I always say to people, I used to just be arrested and left arrested, and then they leave me arrest me for, for, I've done all sorts of petty crimes and stuff like that. They arrest me and then, but when it became real serious, I think the first time I was 16 years old, they arrested me, they took me to Bluvendin prison. And I asked, that was my longest stint, I think it was six months, if I remember correctly, six, five months. It was longest stint at the time? Yes. Yeah. I came out and uh, then an, I was arrested again, get out, get out on bail. But when it got me just after I turned 20, that's when I was sentenced to 17 years in prison for two counts of armed robbery. Well, it seems like you got away quite lightly there <laughs> for yeah. only two counts. Yes, I did. I did. I was actually shocked because I think, I think, uh, yeah, I got off. I, I think it was probably what I told the judge because I remember he asked me, what do I want to say in mitigation of sentence? Mm. I just look at him and I said, you know what, you want to give, why must I have, why must I tell you for you to give me uh, clemency? Or he said to me, because we're going to give you some mercy. I said, mercy? Said, I told the judge, judge C. B. Salia. I said to him, mercy? Mercy? You want to give me mercy at this age? Why did you give me mercy when I was 13 years old? Do you know how we colored boys grew up? Do you know what we go through? But you are sitting here to come and be a judge over me as a color boy while you guys don't know. You were telling me that it's impossible for me to know when I passed matric. He asked me during the trial when, which year, and which day did I pass my matric. I said, I can't remember. And I said, you said I'm lying. Because matric was important to you. That's why you could remember it. I didn't give a damn about matric. And let me tell you something today. You send us me to ever where you want to send us me because you never showed me mercy. Look at you guys here. My lawyer is white. The prosecutor is white. The stenographer is white. The judge is white. The policeman is white. I'm in a white man's world. Just send us me to whatever you want to. My one friend even told the judge, go fuck yourself. Because that's how nobody showed us mercy. Mercy was a foreign concept to us. And it's, it's, you know, I've been arrested a few times as well. Cause, mm. uh, I was an, I'm an addict and I had trouble. And anyway, I, mm. I've kind of fixed that now. But <laughs> mm. um, when I got arrested and I had to go to courts, um, I looked at the judge and, you know, I thought like maybe I could get away with this or maybe they'll be lenient on me. But I feel like what you just said, right, is you grew up in an environment where you knew they weren't going to be lenient on you. Yes. You knew that they were just going to give you whatever sentence they were going to give you because you were just another person to them. Mm. Did you did you get prison sentence? No, I didn't, thankfully. No. I was, you know, I was... If I, I can tell you boys that was, that was arrested in Menenberg and Kreifontein, the same age as you, they, they go to jail. Of course, yeah. It's white privilege. Yeah. And well, also what I did was it was a first-time offense, and I, it wasn't very serious, but I know what you mean. They probably mm. still would have thrown one of those kids in anyway. There's many first-time offenders. I'm just trying to show to you yeah. that people are uncomfortable to say these things. Yeah. That I'm saying it here. That, you know, when a white guy kills a, a person in this country, the first thing they do, they send him to Falkenberg. 
to go and see this head. They make sure they're okay. They yeah. want to make yeah. sure because for them it's a foreign concept for a white guy to kill somebody. Yeah. Well, when we kill somebody, they're like, mm-hmm, you go to jail. It's expected in it's a way. It's expected. Yeah. Now the racism that the court showed just in the in that matter, where you can see any white guy, you just kill people. They go like, you need to go to Falkenberg. But if they didn't kill somebody, yeah, no, tippies. It's like what, expected. Yeah. It's like what happened with Oscar Pistorius, right? It's like he shot her, but they were like, they had to. They were trying to find so many different ways. But oh, he must have been insane, or <sighs> they, he must have not known it was her. It's <laughs> like no, he's a white guy and he killed someone. <laughs> that's that's all. We walk past a murder scene and they're like, no, come here, you killed that person because you black, you must have killed that person. That is mm. that is. Uh, so basically, those are. Things we go through. And which, you were sentenced for 17 years. Which prison were you Hurtfully sent? maximum security prison. In Bloemfontein. Yes, it's a maximum security prison and they just refuse to. Because you see, there's a maximum, there's a medium. Yeah. And they would keep you, they keep. They kept me in maximum. They refused to make me a medium. Rightly so, because my behavior was just appalling. And from what I could tell, it seemed like you were very well known already. Yes. How did they treat you in prison? What was your life like in prison? Respect. I had respect. I'm the 1% in jail. I got my bed made for me, my washing done for me. I was a respected man because I was already a made man when I came to jail. And I had a name. And I can't say that to anyone. I can't say that of everyone going to jail. Uh, well, almost no one. Yeah, just yeah. a few of us. I mean, like, I was, uh, I had a name, and uh, it, it, as we say in jail, fuck around and you'll learn. Yeah, nobody will fuck around with us. No, they say, uh, fuck around and you'll find out. Yeah. yeah. In jail, they change it a bit. <laughs> oh, okay. They say, yeah. fuck around and you'll learn. <laughs> learn means you learn a lesson, you'll yeah, never yeah, forget. Yeah. I mean, but, so, did you have quite a lot of power, or were you just respected? I had all the power in jail. What, what uh, kind of things could you do? That others couldn't. If I wanted, I don't drink. I don't drink in jail, but my friends drink. If I wanted uh, them to have whiskey, I can. I could arrange. Uh, I would make you example. I'm the first prisoner that there was a gang war happening in jail, and I didn't want to sign the peace. And they said, "What do you want to sign? What must we do for you to sign?" Because all the other gangs signed. I said. I love football. I want my team to go play outside. And the president authorities agreed to that. And my team went to go play in Heidedal's Clash Solomon Sports Stadium. And it's it's not things I'm proud of, but I was not I was a menace to society. I was a menace to you know, they've got this thing where they put where they put uh prisoners, you can't be alone, you can't you can either be alone in a single cell. But there can't be two of you. There must be three of you. Because if you kill somebody, it's only the two of you. There's no witnesses. Yeah. But they put you three of you. And, and I was in solitary confinement so many times. And they, guys were just refusing to be with me. They're like, the man is mal. Prisoners, murderers were refusing to be locked up with me. Why did you get into a lot of fights? Yes, I was. I remember my cousin. Well, I mean, you're quite a small guy. I can't imagine you would hurt anyone. Very small, you know. <laughs> what my, are you like? What, like 60, uh, 70 kilos? Uh, <laughs> 43. <laughs> no, they even got my cousin Isto from another prison. Mm. Uh, 
that because somebody said to him, the guy that he respects his sister, and they brought him from another prison. To try and calm you down. And he did, and he did, and and, and, and he did manage to really calm me down. I was just mm-hmm. angry. I was a, I was a young, I was young, I was colored, and I didn't give a damn. And a big guy as well, yeah. A very big guy. I mean, yeah. like, my first day in jail, I got into the biggest fight in prison. Can you tell us about yes. it? Yes. I came in, and there's this guy that said they wanted to teach me a lesson. Because my, my, my case was in the newspapers. And in prison, they would talk, hey, Gaten has been found guilty, he's coming. And somebody said, I'm going to show that Gaten. And I came in jail, and there's this guy's name is Veve. Veve. Yeah. And I just walked in, I gave a guy some money. I said, who's the most powerful guy there? And he said, he's Veve. I was sitting on a turn. I called another guy. I remember I had a 150 rent. I gave the first one 50 rent. I said, who's the most powerful guy? He said, Veve. I called another guy. I said, who's the most powerful guy again? He said, Weve. That's when I was sure it's Weve. And I got last 50 rent. I gave another guy. I said, what do they do here when you hit the prisoner? And he says, they take you to solitary confinement. I realized these ones are going to want to kill me tonight to prove a point. And I gave him 50 bucks. I said, go tell that wardens I'm not scared of them. And I walked over to Weve and I fucked him up. I tell him, I cut him open with my fist. I kicked the living daylights out of him. And the wardens beat me up and I went. My first day, I straight went to solitary confinement for three months. And I, I just think that for me, people ask me, why do I believe in God? I said, it's impossible for me not to believe in God. Where I was to where I am now, it cannot be it's, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's so hard to explain to people that who I was, man, I was a dangerous guy, you know. I, and people say that for people to fear them. I don't want you to fear me. I won't, don't worry. Yeah. <laughs> no, you will. <laughs> uh, if we were in jail, you would have. Yeah, in jail, maybe, yeah. yeah. But what I'm saying is that people say the things to look big. I am, I've got everything I want mm-hmm. or that money can buy for me. So it's not about wanting to be feared, but... Who I was to where I am today, it's only my mother that truly understood that something must have happened and God happened for me to to be who I am today. It's only God. It can be nobody else. I was... I look at the picture at my sister's house the other day. I was, I was showing my guys. There's 16 people in the picture. How many of them are alive? I'm the only one. I was in the middle of that picture. I was so emotional. I look at this picture and I looked for somebody other than me being alive in that picture. And everybody was dead. And it is the hardest thing to explain to people how God has changed my life. So that's why I don't get offended when people bring up my past. Yeah. Because I don't live there anymore. Yeah. I'm saying to people, I was saying to the Sunday Times, and they interviewed me once, I said to them, I'm never going to look for a job. I've got businesses that's very successful. I'm, I'm, I'm quite all right. I have exposed a lot of corruption. That's what I want to talk about next. In jail. I have given millions to charity. 
I have given, I'm giving jobs to ex-prisoners. Now, if you don't want to accept, give me a second chance. That has done all those things. What about the guy that didn't expose corruption, that didn't give people uh, money charity for charity, yeah. that don't hire ex-prisoners? All he wants to do is to become a better person. You said that people should be given the death penalty or they should bring back the death penalty, right? Mm. If you believe in second chances, how can you justify that? I said people should be, I said the death penalty should come back. I didn't say the death penalty should come back as your first crime. I can't kill a person that has committed a crime. Then I kill you. I'm talking the reason why, and that's what you must understand. I'm going to give you a real answer here. What you must understand is there's war in Ukraine. There's war in Sudan. There's war in Yemen. There's a conflict between the Palestinians and the Israelis. If you take the death toll among all those four wars I've mentioned, it doesn't even make half of our death toll, and we are not at war. We've got 68 people dying here every day. Are you talking about in the colored community? No, in South Africa. In South Africa, okay. We've got 68 people dying every day. There's four wars I've mentioned, and the people dying in those wars are not even what we are experiencing here. How do you sort this out? You sort this out by making sure that the people that keep on giving the same instruction for people to be killed, they must die. I can't kill a first offender. I believe in rehabilitation. I believe in giving people more chances. But if you kill 10 people, what more chance do you need? You must die. I just don't see how the death penalty solves any of those problems. Let me show you. Let me ask you a question. When I am in jail, let me make a jail example because we talk about jail. Yeah. I'm serving 100 years in jail. You come in. I kill you. It happens. I get another 50 years. He comes in, I kill him. I get another 50 years. I already know I'm not going out with my 100. He comes in, he comes in, I kill 10 people in jail. Yeah. What solution do you have? What do you mean it doesn't solve? The solution for me would be to separate um, hardened criminals to petty criminals. <laughs> I feel <laughs> like that would be a better solution. You've not been in jail. No, I mean, I haven't, but... Corruption. Yeah, I just, I just know the way jail works in South Africa isn't working. No, jail works everywhere. People die in American prisons. People die in all the yeah, prisons. Yeah, but the, I'm saying the reform in but South African prisons is, is very low. Corruption will make them reach wherever they want to reach. They pay a warden. What if I kill the wardens? Let's leave the prisoner. Can you separate me from a warden as a prisoner? I feel like you can, yeah. Excuse me? To an extent, yes. I, to an extent, I, I know what you're saying, but I just, I still don't believe that the death penalty will solve any no, of that. No, I'm trying to, to show you yeah. that. 
that you can't separate the water from a prisoner. No. It's virtually impossible. Unless you're going to make the prisoner starve to death, unless you're going to... It's just not... Yeah, you then need you to isolate right, them more, yeah. It's worse than... Then the prisoner is going to wish to to die. He's going to kill himself. I mean, like... Here's the issue. In this country, you have people that keeps on killing people because the worst thing happened to them is jail. They can go to jail and come out of jail again. Surely, you look at Botswana, the lowest criminal, uh, the lowest crime rate. Why? They have the death penalty. Botswana has the lowest crime rate in Africa. You think it's a coincidence? What would you do then if someone is wrongfully convicted? No. Of a crime the, and they get the death penalty, which happens a lot in South Africa, is wrongful mm -hmm. convictions. Yeah, but there's no death penalty here. So I don't can, no, but if they brought it back, I'm saying. Yes, I'm saying to you that when we say we bring the death penalty back, it's not just that the death penalty is back. It, it goes hand in hand with a lot of stuff. A lot of stuff being we fix our justice system. It definitely needs to be we fixed, We make yeah. sure that not only rich people can access legal aid. Uh, so there's a lot of things that goes with that. Yeah. But the end, the end in mind is when we have fixed all of that, do you think there's a difference between sending a person to life for jail that's been wrongfully convicted and after years after he's died? That's, I always find this argument fascinating. I know of guys that has not committed a crime mm. because I knew I committed that crime and this guy is in jail and he, he's my friend. And, and long after he died, he has served 25 years. Uh... What's the difference? He was still wrongfully convicted. He spent his life in jail. Yeah. What I'm saying to you is that no matter what, people like yourself, you have that stance that it doesn't solve until your dad gets killed or your child gets killed or your mom gets brutally killed in the house. Mm -hmm. Then you would want those people to be hanged. But while you're isolated from death, while you're isolated from the hurt that we see and people dying, you might think it doesn't solve. But we that live, not a single day that I've been on this earth, nobody has not been killed on the Cape Flats. So I'm speaking to you now, somebody's dying. And when you live amongst death like we do, and you know it's an instruction for this person to be killed, and you know the people that always give the instructions, you see the very same people driving fleshy cars and they can't be touched. I'm going to kill them. I'm going to hang them. Well, I mean, getting back to prison and the corruption, right? You mentioned that you exposed a lot of corruption in prison. Um, can you tell me about the Hrutflay prison scandal that, that happened? So you led an operation that exposed corruption in prison. Uh, the warders were doing uh, corrupt acts. I mean, can you tell me how that came about? Were you a prisoner at the time? right? Were you approached to do this sting operation? It was your idea. Can you tell us how you came up with that idea and the execution of that idea and what obviously happened after that? Well, basically is that I, in jail, there's a big rule, don't interfere with the work of another gang. And there was a young boy that came into jail and he was raped by 18 men. He was a white boy. Yeah. And I didn't help him. And he cried, he screamed, he begged. Nobody helped him. I was there. I didn't help him. 
And the next day, they raped him for nine, all night, basically. And the next day, he was laying in a corridor, naked, shivering in his own blood. And everybody jumped over him. And just as I was about to jump over him, I looked at him, and there's just something that connected with my soul. I, I was a racist then. I hated white people, but I couldn't leave that white boy there. I didn't understand that. I do understand now what happened to me. And I looked at him, and I said, you should go to the cops. And he said, I can't go. I said, why? He says, because they killed me, these criminals. I picked him up at great risk to my own life, and I took him to the wardens. And they were standing in a half moon, and I told them, this child has just been violated. And they said what they said to all the other prisoners in jail. There's no proof. I said, look at the blood on my T-shirt. This is all the proof that you need. They didn't want to help him. And I said to him, I give you my absolute word. I'm going to help you. I'm going to protect you. And I'm going to get you all the proof in the world. I then called my sister and somebody else, another uh, white guy. And both of them responded. And we got cameras, smuggled it into prison. And we made a video of all the children being sold for 10 rents in jail to be having an F sex with. We made a video in jail. So the warders were selling young men to the older inmates yes, for 10 rents. to use them as like a prostitute. Yes. I made a, we made a video of all how prisoners will starve and go hungry while the wardens are selling the food together with the prisoners. We show how firearms get smuggled into jail. And for me, that's when my life totally transformed. And 20 other X we filmed. And the video became bigger than what we ever imagined it to be. It was shown all over the world. It became a movie, didn't it? Or? It's about to become a movie. And uh, we were then... I remember we, the prison authorities said, they think this is Hollywood. We'll show them. Boy, did they show us. Yeah. We went through the worst time ever. And I remember when I thought these people were give, I had to eat brown bread only because to make sure, because the only way I couldn't be poisoned. They will put us in a cell together and we as men will hold each other for body warmth. She was about to die. In the midwinter, free state weather, with no window, wet blankets. And I remember one warden, I asked him, Sir, can I make one call? God bless him because he made me make that call. I called the guy called Matata Tsedu, was the editor of the Sunny Times, and I told him it was Saturday afternoon. I told him what happens to us, what's happening to us. And he said, I'll see what I can do. It's a bit late, we're already in print. And he managed to put a small insert on the front page of the Sunday Times of what's happening to us. And I only learned later that Nelson Mandela intervened and we were released. I only learned that later, that Nelson Mandela was loved and he intervened. And it's incredible, eh? And we were released from jail, and I remember they wanted first me to go out, and I refused. Mm. I said, I'm not going out without my friends. 
and we came out. And I came out with the 12 rents out of jail. And I had to start all over again. And I did. And you started a different path, right? When I you started, got out? Yeah, I, crime, I was tired of crime. I was sick of crime. And I, I, became, I became an entrepreneur. I first worked for job security. I earned a thousand rands a month. I then worked for Nike, where I worked with Oscar Baturius. Uh, I then worked for Central and Gold. I then started uh, prior to Central and Gold between Nike and Chop. Started a fish business, which became a multi-million-dollar business, selling fish. Uh, then started mines, nightclubs, uh, a lot of businesses. Yeah. I became super wealthy, and then I. Uh, Always knew in my soul there's something I wanted to do. And then I gave heed to the voice that always told me that I have to help colored people. I started a political party. And that voice later told me that you gotta help all people of South Africa. And as you have now, we're the fastest growing political party in South Africa. I mean, I wanna talk a little bit about your political party, but I wanna first talk about some of your business partners, right? So you met Kenny Kunene in prison. Yes. Is that, that's correct, eh? That's correct. So, I mean, can you tell me exactly how you met him? Mm, Kenny saved my life. When I was in jail, the, after exposing the rapes in jail. Kenny's the sushi king, by the way. That's why we had the sushi on the uh, table. <laughs> uh, so when uh, the, I was in jail, we were, there was this fights. And there was a lot of fighting, yeah. yeah. But they were angry, I exposed that, and they wanted to kill me, but I didn't care about that. So one day, I love reading. So I'm like, ah, oh, fuck this, I'm gonna go to the library. And I went to the library to go and read, to go and get books. On my way back, the 28th were waiting for me to, to kill me. And Kenny came past, he was a T-boy in jail. And he had a half-eaten cake, a knife, and uh, cups there. Some tea. Uh. And he came and he said to me, there's people waiting for you around the corner. And I remember I took the knife and you can see like here in my hand, they stepped me multiple times as I was guarding with this hand. And I stepped them with this hand. I managed to step them, those guys. How many of them were there? I think, I didn't count, but I think it was like eight of them. I stepped. I stabbed them, but they also stabbed me. And Did any of them sort of die or? No, uh, unluckily, nobody died. So, <laughs> just choking, but yeah, they didn't die. Otherwise, I've still been in jail. Mm. And but it would have been self-defense, no? Uh, you never know. This thing. You, you don't just, know how it's perceived in prison, yes, yeah. They will say, I'm not, I'm not mad, so I must go to stay in jail. <laughs> so, I came, and then Kenny saved my life. I called him to the cell. And I made him a gangster. He wasn't a gangster. He wasn't a gangster. Yeah, I said, no, nah, because I knew they were going to kill him yeah. for help for tipping me off. And I said to him, you know what? And that man taught me God in jail. Kenny taught me who's God. And I made a promise to him, and he made a promise to me. He said, whoever comes out first must come find the other one. And I came out first and I looked for him, found him after a year of coming out of jail. 
was a teacher at some school. I went to go fetch him. He didn't even resign when he saw me. It was like in the movies. He was running to me like two lovers. And he jumped in the car. And I remember as we were driving, he found the roadblock because I was driving a compressed Mercedes. And he said to me, gee, I hope you didn't steal this car. I said, no, I didn't steal this car. <laughs> and since then, we started businesses together. We came rich together. Yeah. I helped him. He helped me. So he he originally went to prison. So he he served six years in jail for fraud yes. in 1997 after being convicted of running a Ponzi scheme, right? Yes. And then another person, when I was researching you, that came up. And so I do a lot of work with gang members and, and, and gangsters in general, right? I've had many gangsters on this podcast. And th that's why this stuck out was um, another person you were associated with was Rashid Stahi. Yes. Right. So um, can you tell me a little bit about him and what he's known for? Well, uh, Rashid Stahi and them were, you know, uh, Rashid Stahi is one of the gangsters that I that has been wronged. And I'll tell you why I'm saying that. There's, two, there's another gangster, a guy called Geweld. Now, before I tell about Rashid, let me tell about Geweld. Mm. Geweld has committed more murders than anybody. But Geweld is a victim of the state. Let me explain why I'm saying that. Geweld has been sent to jail from the age of nine years. Nine years. Nine years. It's a child, man. Was that like a full, like... Adult prison. It wasn't like a juvenile detention center. No, but at nine, you're not a juvenile. Yeah. You're a child. You cannot be imprisoned at the age of nine. Yeah. At nine, you, you're still a child. Still believe in the tooth fairy. Mm. Maybe not a tooth fairy, but yeah. Yeah, but Chris, uh, Santa yeah. Claus. <laughs> but people like Javier and them were already programmed to become animals. And I know that if if he has good defense, he should not be in jail. Because he has a nine-year-old child. What do you expect when you put a nine-year-old child amongst hardened murderers? Mm. What you get him becoming a person killed the most people was planted by the state. I just wanted I was with him in jail. That's how I know his story. Yeah. That's number one. Number two, Rashid Stahi. So I'll, I'll, was, shall I give a quick description of Rashid Stahi before? You, actually, you, you tell it. You tell no, it. you can't describe Rashid to me. Okay. I must you describe tell me, Rashid you tell me, to yeah. you. Yeah. Rashid Stahi, in your description, yeah. do you have it that he was evicted from District 6? No. Exactly. No. He was evicted for you to be told tomorrow you wake up here and and you'll be told you no longer this home is no longer yours. No, I mean I could never imagine. Him and a his place brother. where your family has grown up for generations. It's and they were put in a place there in Mannenberg. They're far away from their family home. And with no job, nothing. And crime was an easy option. And this is not trying to defend crime. No. Okay. But I there must be context. Tr no, tr trust and me. Context. Listen, I sometimes I get flack because I'm constantly defending criminals, yes. right? Especially people in places like the Cape Flats, right? So Rashid didn't just stand up. So if Rashid is guilty, if Rashid is in the guilt in the box, Rashid shouldn't be the only one there. The people that took his parents' house should be there. The people, the government that gave them that should be there with them. 
People don't know the life of colored boys, how we grew up, what we had to face. It's so easy to judge us because we, we've gone through the worst things. I know my friends that were killed because he walked in the wrong street. It was someone else's section or something, eh? He's not, they were not gangsters. I buried more than 10 children in the Western Cape or 20 children that were shot in the schoolyard through the head. What wrong did that child do? But when you read the articles, another gangster has been killed. It's not a gangster, it's a child. Mm -hmm. Nathaniel Julius. That's why I got involved in that matter. Because I said, it stops here. When Nathaniel Julius was told a gangster was killed, and I told the premier of Gauteng, I said, you will not call him a gangster because he had Down syndrome. There's no gangster with Down syndrome. And the truth came out later. What I'm saying to you is that Rashid and them has done what they did. Gaten McKenzie and them has done what they did. Gewalt and them has done what they did. But I can tell you one thing. It's not a full story. Mm. I'm sure it's not. So yeah, Rashid Stachy is a... I was there. I helped him come out of jail. I was there the day that he came out of jail. I gave him bodyguards to look after him when he came out of jail. I tried to bring him into politics to change his life. And I didn't succeed. Mm. I mean, I'll, I'll read a description now that you've kind of laid down a bit of context, right? And you can tell me whether this accurately describes his life or uh, his, somewhat of his story, right? Obviously, it's very short. But um, So Rashid Stahi was a South African gangster and leader of the Hard Living's gang. He was shot and killed in Salt River on 13th December uh, 2019 in Cape Town. His twin brother, Rashad Stahi, the initial leader of the Hard Living's gang was killed after being shot and burned alive in Salt River in 1996 by members of a vigilante group called uh, Pagad. I think it was called Pagad, eh? People yeah. Against Gangsterism and Drugs. Um, the Stachy brothers were killed in the same street, London Street. That's quite a crazy coincidence, hey? Or not? They, they lived there. They lived there, okay. Um, and in 2003, Rashid Stachy was sentenced to jail after he was convicted for ordering the gang rape of a 17-year-old girl who had turned state witness against him. Stahi was sentenced to 15 years for kidnapping and rape. And in 2004, he was convicted of burglary and robbing uh, a police station's armory and sentenced to 13 years in prison. And then um, it says Rashid Stahi's criminal career. By the time the twins were teenagers, they were active drug dealers and and were able to uh, make some money as they got older they became more aggressive and influential in Cape Town, uh, Cape Town's underworld. By the 1990s, the twins were notorious gang leaders and their gang, the Hard Living's Gang, had members all around the Cape Peninsula. The Hard Living's Gang participated in a range of crim- uh, crimes such as armed robbery, dealing uh, of guns and drugs, uh, and uh, the Hard Living's Gang had clashes with rival gangs, the Americans and the Mongols, under the rule of Rashid Stahi. Uh, the hard livings took part in violent gang wars that led to bloodbath in the streets of Cape Town. That's half the story. It's not. I'm sure it's not even a tenth of they the story. They tell yeah. the full story. That's that, just. That's what we have. It's like there's even lies being written there. Yeah. There's so many things that that that's just not true. What I'm saying to you is that was Rashid Stahi a gangster? Yes. Was Gaten McKenzie a gangster? Yes. Mm. Did Gaten McKenzie do bad things? Yes. Did Rashid Stahi do bad things? Yes. But why is nobody speaking about the bad things having been done to Rashid? What I'm saying is that... They don't talk about how they got to that position. How they got there. I mean, like, ask yourself if you wake up one day and you are being told you are being put in Mitchell's plane. 
you, your mother and your father and your whole family with no money. And you got to start all over again. And the home that you knew is not your home. And stealing is the only way to survive that. And stealing a bread leads to stealing a... Uh, robbing the bakery. No. So, so what all I'm saying is that I want people to tell the full story. Yeah. Hundred percent, and that's why we have conversations like this. And I appreciate right? you because I mean, you you want to get to the thing, you you want to get to the thing, and I'm sitting here and I'm appreciating you that you wanna you you have a better knowledge than most people your age and your color when it comes to this matters that we are dealing with. Well, this is a topic that and I the, focus heavily on. Yeah, and the reason why I'm in politics is to make sure that my past does not become the future of the children in the Cape Flats and elsewhere. That's the reason. I mean, politics to make sure that my past does not become the future of the kids I see growing up. That's my principal reason for being in politics. My principal reason for being in politics is because nothing has changed. The boys that still go to jail, there's still shooting happening. There's still drug selling happening. There's still the killing of our people being ignored. I mean, you could say it's probably worse than it ever was. Yes. Now, I have a duty to come and stop that. And believe me, I'm going to stop it. So that was part of the reason you wanted to work with Rashid Stahi. Not, not only him. I worked with every gangster. But not, you wanted to work with them and bring them into your party so that you could stop what was going on. Because yes. you knew if you had influential figures that were gangsters, right, the people... Um, that look up to them will see that n now there is a different route. This this guy is leading the way. Maybe I'll follow him in the right direction. There's two guys I can call you. I can call them my name. There's a guy called Wal Walid Khurbum. He was in jail. I brought him in my camp. He, today is the MMC of I think housing in Naisna municipality. There's another one who was in jail for drug dealing. Kevin van der Ross. Kevin was in jail. Today, Kevin is the auditor. Kevin is the MMC of housing in the free state. Or he was the MMC of housing in the free state. That's what I wanted to do with Rashid. That's what I wanted to do with Ernie Lastach. That's what I wanted to do with each and every gangster I approached to join the PA then. But some saw the vision, others didn't. Yeah. The Kevin saw the vision, the Walids saw, saw the vision, the Rashid didn't see the vision. I mean, we. so I want to talk a little bit about your political party more now, right? So um, I read this article by the Sunday Times. It seems like you have a bit of a turbulent relationship with them. It's all media. <laughs> but um, yeah, I want you to tell me how you feel about this statement that they didn't make it, but it was quoted in the, in the Sunday Times. So uh, the Patri Patriotic Alliance is made up of some of South Africa's most notorious characters. Have you read this before? So some of, their, some of uh, South Africa's most notorious characters, bank robbers, current and former gang bosses, underworld operatives, dodgy businessmen, um, drug peddlers, fraudsters, con artists, smugglers, and even church pastors. And then it said underneath it says, um, it all has the trappings of a genuine political party. Uh, but a police officer told the Sunday Times that the group was nothing more than an attempt to legitimize and organize crime in Western Cape. Um, these guys are keen on getting the political stamp of acceptability while muscling in on some real power and state money, the officer said. So how do you feel about that statement? Nothing. 
that is, is a saying in English that says, consider the source. I can count the people with dubious past in the PA. I can count them. I can count the people that come from jail in the Patriotic Alliance. I can count them. So you're saying there's not that many? If I can count them, there's not that many. Yeah. We have 400,000 members, signed up members. Now, if I say to you, I can count them. Now, tell me, the, in the Democratic Alliance, you have all the guys from Kufut. You have all the guys from Flak Plus. Mm. You have people, but they don't talk about them. They don't talk about the people that was that literally were part of the CCB, that were literally part of death squads. They work for the Democratic Alliance. They have positions in the Democratic Alliance. And there's nothing wrong with that because I think we should move on. But you see, the media is not our friend. The media is owned by the people that has not seen something wrong. The very same media, right, Save the rhino at the height of colored men dying. More colored men died than rhinos. But what is the saying? Save the rhino and not the braino. That must tell you who we're dealing with here. In spite of that, the PA is growing. All these stones, we build temples with them. We are growing. We are growing. I get worried if this one that oppressed my people will write favorably about me. Then it shows you I'm selling out. While they write about me like that, my people know I'm not selling them out. I am not a media creation. Because I've got nothing to hide. I'm coming here. I talk about my past because I'm transparent. Yeah. And my people know who I am. They know my heart. They can write all the things about Gates and McKenzie. But the people that I lead, they know who is Gaten McKenzie? What is Gaten McKenzie standing for? How far will, go, will Gaten McKenzie go for us? I came in here not even knowing who you are. Not even knowing what you're going to ask me. But I came because I've got nothing to hide. <laughs> I was very surprised when you walked in and there was a body on the table and you didn't even acknowledge it. <laughs> you just said. <laughs> and you were on your phone you just like you were, you were like ignoring the fact and like you were talking so seriously for like five or ten minutes and i was like how is this guy not even concerned that there's a body on the table <laughs> i'm sitting over here smelling the sushi like what is going on here but um yeah i mean you're a very interesting guy um so i mean your business relationship from what i've heard with kenny um, has come to an end in some ways, right? I, I, I heard that you, because you had uh, businesses together, that you sold back your portion of the business to him. Yes, no, no. We, we once had a, a big fallout, not as friends, business fallout. About porn? Yeah, they wanted to invest in porn, and I was talking to school children then. I'm like, guys, I'm doing motivational speaking. You guys are coming back. And then telling children. And Kenny's over here trying to look like Hugh Hefner. Yeah, and it's like, definitely, it's like, listen, uh, I said, let me sell my stake in the media company. Then you guys can go on with the pod. <laughs> <laughs> I sold my stake. He paid me for my stake in the media company. But we still have businesses together. We've got mining interests together. Okay, so it We've wasn't got all We've got transport businesses. interests together. So yeah, Kenny's my brother. Mm. I mean, like, yo, I love that man. So just coming towards the end, right? Um, so you want to become president in 2024. Yes. 
Do you think that's achievable? Of course. By 2024? It's highly achievable. And I'll tell you why. Politics have changed. When people are like, how you can become president? How did I become mayor in the central Karua? I became mayor because the balance of forces favored us. Now, if the DA of the Moonshot Pact has 45%. You guys are part of the Moonshot Pact? No, eh? I'm not. You're not? Yeah. I thought you guys were. No, we're not. If they have 45% and the ANC leftist parties has 45%, and I'm sitting with a 10%. I have two choices. I can make somebody the king, or I can choose myself to be the king. Now, people don't understand that. And if you don't understand what I've just explained, then these this issues are beyond you. You shouldn't yeah. uh, argue about issues that you don't understand. Yeah. Once you are the kingmaker, you decide a lot of things. And if I become president, I have five things I'm going to bring in. Only five. Tell me about them. Number one, I'm going to bring God back into schools. I'm going to bring God back into our daily lives in South Africa. Secondly, I'm going to bring back national service. Where you are going to, when you, instead of just getting welfare, you are going to go do national service. You're going to the army. You're going to do youth service. You're going to do national service. Number that's number two. Number three, I'm going to uh, mass deport all illegal foreigners in this country. This is something I wanted to talk about, yeah. I'm going to mass deport all illegal foreigners uh, in, in South Africa. I'm also going to make sure that uh, our minerals don't leave this country as unrefined. I'm going to regulate the flow of minerals out of this country. I'm going to make sure that there's benefits for the people with our minerals. Number five, I'm going to make sure that I explained it at the beginning about race. We must be known as South Africans. There's a lot of changes I'm going to make in this country. I mean, like, uh, for instance, instead of paying girls to get pregnant, I'm going to pay the girls that's not falling pregnant. We pay girls 300 to 500 to get a baby in South Africa. We, we, we spend 2 billion rands on condoms. And if the kids don't use the condoms, we incentivize them. I give you 500 a month. But instead of taking it and turning it around and say, every girl and boy that doesn't fall pregnant, you get a 500. Then you still save money because there's no hospital cost. The majority of these children cost a lot on the state, not only the 500. They're heavy on the state's bill. Going back to the illegal foreigners, right? So what benefit do you think, What? how would South Africa benefit if there wasn't illegal foreigners? Number one, you have medical aid, I have medical aid. So it's very hard for us to understand that. I was in a government hospital the other day and I saw it because I know that's one of the things that you mentioned, right? Is the hospitals are overrun. Yes. And the doctor, I mean, I saw that the other day. It was, I was at uh, New Somerset Hospital. Yes. Uh, for Caroline was actually there. Yes. And it, I just couldn't believe the emergency unit, how, how bad it was. But I didn't see foreigners, mostly, mostly I saw gangsters. As the patients. No, you get foreign gangsters. Yeah. So you probably yeah, saw yeah. foreign gangsters because they're in every hospital. Raima Musa. Literally. I'm telling you fact that that's, that's been valued. That South African women are laying on the floor, giving birth. 
while illegal foreigners are on the bed. I saw this on a video that was taken by our MMC of Economic Development. Uh, no, it was the MMC of Health, sorry. You have one of the guys that worked for me had to go for a, a colonoscopy. They told him the line is three hours, three, three, three months, waiting period. I had to send him to a private hospital. Mm -hmm. You go to any restaurant in Cape Town today, it's very hard to find a South African working there that's black. Why do you think that is though? Because surely like, because there's more South Africans than, than there is foreigners, right? In South Africa. So if you say you can't find any or almost any, does that mean that we're just not willing to work? No. Because the we are it not should be willing 50, to 50. be exploited. It shouldn't even be 50-50. Or it 50, should be 75 50, or it 25. It should be 95. Yeah. It should be 100% because being a waiter is not a special skill. But that's why I'm the like, yeah, yeah. The laws of the land says you have to have a special skill. Being a waiter is not a special skill. So it should be 100%. But let me tell you why you don't find us there. Mm. Because we are not willing to be exploited. We are not willing to... What the reason is subtle racism. The owners of industry can exploit these illegal foreigners. Because they, they know UIF. they have no choice. They yeah. don't have, they are not unionized. They have no UIF. They yeah. know they're not unionized. They can chase them away whenever they feel like it. They are underestimating. People have died for our people to find jobs, to find opportunities, and to get equal pay, to get a living wage. Mm. And that is being undermined by these illegal foreigners. Do you know how many foreigners there are in South Africa? 15 million. Don't listen to this 3 million, 4 million. I, know, I, I have no idea. 15 I've never million. Looked it up. And 15 still, million. I'm still guessing 1.5. One 1.5. Five. I'm still guessing. Yeah. Because it's hard to say how many there are because they came here on the back of a crocodile. But if, if they left, do you not think that our system would collapse? Our system has already collapsed for our people, the people I represent. They have no jobs and they are 38 years old and he's never had a job in his life. That's a collapse of a system, wouldn't you agree? So when, when they say there's like 60 million like people in South Africa, right? Is that including 15 million foreigners? Or yes. Is, it is included. And Treasury okay. doesn't make provision for them. You see, you talk about collapse. The system has already collapsed for our people. And how would you get them to leave? Well, at the moment, I don't have the power to make them leave. If you were in power? How would you get foreigners to leave? What I will be doing is very simple. I will do three things. You see all those people that we are sending as the army for national service, conscription? I will make them the force responsible to, rem to arrest illegal foreigners. That's number one. Number two, I will build a wall. Arrest them or send them home? Arrest them to send them home. You must arrest them to send them home. Okay. You can't just say go. Yeah, home. yeah, yeah. They will not go. You have to arrest them. And I'm just saying them. you're not sending them to prison, though. No, there's no time. They no, already no. must go feed them. He goes straight from there to the border in the truck, and straight to the border. He'll even he'll go straight to the border. There's no. Yeah, I'm gonna sleep over. Mm. Get my lawyer. And how would you, you stop them from getting back? That's why I say I'm building a wall. That's my second point. It has I'm to making. be a tall wall because you know we can jump no. it. <laughs> Let me tell you. Let me tell you. Yeah. So, beware your soul. If you come over that border, I will have a shoot to kill instruction. 
Because see, so, going yeah. into, you see, for me, it's, you must understand, this problem affects our people greatly. And if we deport you, and you come over that wall, as high as that wall is going to be, you will find trouble on this side. Because then you are terrorist. And what happens if they come by boat or plane? If they come by <laughs> boat or plane yeah. in this country, we will then take you back. Yeah. And then we will impound that plane. We'll impound that boat. Because how did the person get on the boat without you checking the paperwork? Number three, where the easiest thing I'll do. All illegal foreigners, he has either one of two things. He has a job or he's a criminal. Nobody comes to die of hunger. I will then punish and close businesses that still hire illegal foreigners. But those three things I told you and I'll do will greatly diminish. And the fourth one, which we don't mention now, is when they see we are serious, they will start leaving by themselves. They will start living by themselves. Will you make it easier for foreigners to come in the country legally? Because at the moment, it's very difficult. No. Legally, free. legally. Go and prepare your papers in your country and apply. Those ones, there's no war in Zimbabwe. What type of asylum seekers are these that goes home December? Have you seen the border during December? Have you seen Bait Bridge? You can't get out of Zimba out of South Africa. Because there's lines, them going home. What type of people are these? I'm saying to you, they will go home. We will mass deport them. We will close businesses that hire illegal foreigners. We have no time. We don't want them here. We want them out of this country because our people don't get jobs. We're sitting in a country where 60% use unemployment. 60% use unemployment. And you tell me, we still want to give Zimbabweans a job. It's going to end. I'm saying to you, 2024, something is going to happen here. And that something is the Patriotic Alliance. And we will not take money. We will not be bribed. We will not change our stance. They are going home. And we are closing the businesses that hires them. And we are going to build that wall. And if we build that wall, but where they soul, if they come over that wall, there will be leadership here. So how do you make it easier for people to enter legally, though? We have laws that you be, before you go into a country, there are certain things you got to do to satisfy that country, mm -hmm. that you can be given access to that country. We are not about to change getting access in this country. We are about to make it more difficult because the laxness of those laws of us that make some of them get in here. We are going to do an audit from 1994 to 2024 well, for 30 years, every illegal foreigner, we must reapply for his papers so we can see where there corruption involved. And weed out the people that are corrupt. With the people in the system are going to jail. The people in the system, they are going to jail. They are going to jail. The law of asylum says you go to your next country, your border country. We are not a border country of Nigeria. Why is Nigerians jumping here? We are not a border country of the Congo. Why are they jumping here? There's no war in Zimbabwe, my friend. There's no war in Malawi. Mm. 
There's no war in Nigeria. Nigerians are the worst thing that ever happened to this country. And I'm saying to you, they don't know what's coming. Keaton McKenzie, as the leader of the Battle of the Alliance, is coming. And they are going to see. Some of you might think I'm dreaming. Wait. Wait and see what happens 2024. Just to end off, I want to ask you one final question. Salute. And this is the biggest question, right? And the most important one. Bye, Who would win in a fight between you, Julius Malema, Cyril Ramaphosa, Jacob Zuma, John Steenhazen, or Helen Zilla? I will fuck them all up at one time. <laughs> I believe Zuma. you. I believe you. <laughs> I believe you. Anyway, Gaten, thank you so much for coming down and uh, spending your time here and sharing, you know, all of the things that you've been through. You've led one of the most wild lives. And I've spoke to some wild people, hey. Like, that is what the show's about, is speaking to wild people. <laughs> and this has been one of the most wild interviews I've ever done. Um, yeah, thank you so much for coming down. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me, and I really enjoyed myself here. It's a pleasure. Salute. And thank you all for watching. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Wide Awake Podcast, and I'll see you all very soon. Cheers. Salute. Salute. Cheers. <laughs> Cheers. <laughs> <laughs> you got captured there. <laughs> no, thank you. I really enjoyed that. No, no. You're going to go far. <laughs>